Hello and welcome to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair. I'm the worship pastor at Cornerstone, and I am accompanied by David Wilson, our student pastor, and Bobby Harrell, our lead pastor. Both do a wonderful job of speaking truth into our lives here at Cornerstone. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast, as well as all the video devotionals that have been coming your way online. We'd love for you to connect with us as we go through this series and study through the book of 1 Corinthians. If at any point, whether you're listening to a sermon, a podcast, or watching one of our devotionals, if you have any questions that arise, we'd love to have a conversation with you and open up a way for two-way communication to happen. You can do that by texting your questions and feedback to 817-809-3040. We will get your message. We'll take all of the most relevant comments and we will understand them in a group format, just like actually we're gonna get started with today. So this week, we actually got several questions that span over the first and second chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. What we've done is we've pulled out a few of the very best questions. We want to take some time to respond to those as a group. So let's just get started, okay? Let's ask the first one. I'll throw it out to you guys, and you tell me kind of what your response is. Sure. This first one says, in 1 Corinthians 2.15, Paul writes that the spiritual person can't be evaluated, or in other translations it says judged or rightly judged, by anyone. However, isn't it necessary for even a mature spiritual person to fall under the authority of another to be evaluated and admonished as needed? Is Paul referring to unbelievers being unable to judge a spiritual person? And if so, then why the word choice of anyone or no one? Well, let me Let's be, start with an easy question, well, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's okay. There, there, there's answers in the text, we think. And let, let's just respond as uh, there's three or four layers to this question. Sure. Let me, let me begin. The question is about 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, but since verse 15 and 16 are really grouped together as the conclusion of the previous arguments Paul's making, let me read both 15 and 16. Here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, 15. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, that's the two verses together. The question is really focused on verse 15 about the spiritual person can evaluate everything and yet himself cannot be evaluated by, by anyone. And we deal with one layer of the, the question. And David, you just jump in wherever mm-hmm. you want. Is Paul referring to unbelievers being unable to judge a spiritual person, or what is really being talked about here in this section. Let's remember Mm -hmm. that up till now, what Paul is addressing is what does it mean to be a spiritual person or an unspiritual person? But the unspiritual person has not understood God's wisdom, which is found in Christ and in Mm -hmm. the message of the gospel, Mm -hmm. whereas a spiritual person has received the gospel, understood it, and has come now because of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the reception of God's wisdom has come to have some spiritual discernment. And Paul, that's why I group verse 16 with this. Paul's then ultimate answer is, see, we have the mind of Christ. So Paul is saying 
that a person living in the spirit, mm-hmm. not sure which language, or with the spirit yeah. or walking by the spirit, yeah. a spiritual person can make judgments about all sorts of things. And conversely, a person living after the wisdom of this age is really not in a position to judge a person who belongs to the age to come. So again, the verse cannot stand alone. It stands within the zero Corinthians argument we've been making, that this is the fourth, fifth, or more exchange of dialogue back and forth between two parties who are in a massive running conflict now where one party is saying, the Corinthians are saying about the Apostle Paul, see, we are spiritual. We are highly evolved Christians, highly developed spiritual people. But Paul, all you want to do is talk about the gospel and and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. so basic. Oh, you're so basic. Why do you keep feeding us with milk? Right. We are very sophisticated people. And again, Pastor David spoke eloquently Sunday about, you have to remember that these Corinthians are steeped in this Greek, Mm -hmm. Greco-Roman philosophical pursuit. The Greek word for wisdom is Sophia, and they are, their very culture of Corinth was steeped in a lifetime of pursuing Sophia, a lifetime Mm -hmm. of pursuing deeper, 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 deeper wisdom. And again, you referred to Paul on Mars Hill. He has the ability. And he has the ability to speak that language. And those people were wanting to know deeper, deeper, deeper things. And what did Paul do? He said, let me just talk to you about the unknown God for a minute. And he starts preaching Christ to them, starts preaching the gospel to them. And Paul is trying to awaken us to the fact that the gospel is pretty deep. Right. (laughs) right. And a spiritual person who grasps the depths of what God has done for us and the finished work of Christ on the cross and by his resurrection has really comprehended the greatest truth of the universe. Right. This is the wisdom is what Paul says over and over again. And, and like you said, in the paragraph that precedes what happens in verse 15, Paul's whole point is to contrast God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. And the way that he represents that or points that out is by saying that you are spiritual people because you have the spirit. And therefore, you are able to understand the things of God. You are able to rightly understand what is good or bad in a situation and make the right choice based upon what you know about God and how the Spirit divulges those deep things of God to you. But someone who is not a spiritual person does not have this ability. They have no ability to be able to evaluate, to search, to understand, and to know really what you're all about because they don't have the mind of Christ, which is his great conclusion. I I read uh, a couple of quotes along the lines of exactly what you're saying right now, David. One of the quotes I read is, a profane person cannot understand holiness, but a holy person can well understand the depths of evil. Mm. The theologian Gordon Fee commented on it this way. It's a little hard to follow his wording, but just let me try here. The one whose life has been invaded by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has the capacity to discern all things, including discerning those things outside of the Spirit or those people outside of the Spirit. But the inverse is not possible. Right. And that's just a restatement of everything you just said. That's right. The person who has the Holy Spirit, this is the point. If you've got God living in you, you should be able to make some sound judgments yeah 
because you have true wisdom again. We've got to keep coming back to that phrase. Because you're connected to you. That's right. You're indwelled by the living right. presence of God. Who knows God's mind. Let's go back to the Genesis language. You are a living temple. That's right. Well, and this does very much go back to verse 11, where he says, who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within yeah, him? That's good. If, if you were to ask me, Jeremy, what are you thinking in this very moment? I am the only one who's able to really (laughs) answer that question, right? And so if we are aligned with the mind of Christ, if Mm. his spirit dwells within us, then as spirit-filled people, we are especially able to understand the mind of Christ in a way that someone who is not a spirit-filled person would never be able to understand. So specifically in the question, why is this word anyone or no one used at the end of verse 15? In order to understand that word, you have to place it within the overall context of what Paul is talking about. It's not just making blanket statements. He's making a contrast between spiritual and non-spiritual. Absolutely, there should be levels of accountability and authority within any Christian's life. Yeah, absolutely. It's healthy. It's very healthy. We, we champion that here in our discipleship process, have accountability. You know what I'm saying? That that's vitally important. But when we get to anyone there, because we've already talked about now what a spiritual person is, when we get to anyone, we are specifically talking about an unbeliever's inability, a non-spiritual person's inability to assess or evaluate a spiritual person based upon the criteria that's been laid out. And actually, we can know this even further. One of the things I wanted to talk about in the podcast this week was Isaiah chapter 40, 13. As you guys are reading through, you'll see that in your uh, chapter two there, that there's a black bolded area. That's Isaiah 40, 13, which if you read the whole chapter, all it does is contrast God's understanding with the world's understanding. It's exactly what Paul is doing. Paul is bolstering his point by pointing back to what the prophets of his scripture have told us God is characterized as creator. He's completely other than he's unlike he's totally unique. And because that is the case, he is the one that has to grant us this ability in the first place because we can't know it apart from the spirit indwelling in us. Right. And I think you have to read again, verse 15 and 16 together. Yes. There's a contractive statement in the middle where he goes back and quotes the mm-hmm. Old Testament. If you were to read it without that contractive statement as, as English works, right? Sure. It would read, yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone, but we have the mind of Christ. He's saying we are particularly qualified to be able to evaluate each other because we are not evaluating it with our own wisdom, but rather with the wisdom of the spirit dwelling within us. Chapter six, when we get to chapter six, Paul's yelling at the, and I know I'm getting ahead of us here a little bit, but he's yelling at the believers who are saying about lawsuits among each other. He's like, you guys can't even judge a dispute in between one another. You have to go to the local authorities who don't know the mind of Christ. Like this is not Paul's point that believers can't evaluate and assess one another and keep one another accountable. That's, that's not the point. I'm going to circle back to the specific language asked in the question again. Here's what the the way the question read when it came to us is Paul referring to unbelievers Hmm. being unable to judge a spiritual person. I want to modify it because yeah. it's, it's, let me make it more precise. Is Paul referring to unbelievers being unable to judge a saved person? Mm. Or is Paul referring to infant believers not being able to judge a parent level mature sure. person? Sure. And, and that's really maybe the way to ask the question very precisely. What is exactly he's saying? Mm-hmm. And my answer would be yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. yes. Well, yes. and that could include the anyone even. Okay. There. Yeah. And in a sense, 
I think Paul is saying the person without the Holy Spirit doesn't have the proper wisdom to judge or evaluate that which is spiritual, that which is born again, that which is redeemed and saved. He very well could be saying that, but I want to, I want to be, try to keep circling us back to the text, back to the context, which is what we're, we're talking about live here on Sunday mornings. What does the paragraph mean? What is the context this is written in? The context that this is written in is born again people, which we'll we'll address in the next question, born again people who are only at a spiritual infant level Mm -hmm. proclaiming to the world and the one who led them to Christ, I've outgrown you now. Mm. I'm, I, you know, I'm smarter than you. I know more than you. I'm wiser than you. I'm more spiritual than you. And they evaluated themselves in such a way based on all the wrong measuring points, right? which Paul's going to address in the coming chapters. Yeah, just a few verses later. And Paul's writing back to them saying, wow, you're just infants, and suddenly you know more than all of your instructors. And this is really the friction that mm-hmm. we're dealing with in Corinthians. And that's really the context of where this is based. Let me circle back to one other thing you said a moment ago where you, the the question also included this. Does that mean that someone who's born again isn't accountable to anyone? Right. Now, I think we can all agree that that is not what Paul's saying. And we have a lot of biblical evidence of that. And Mm -hmm. I would just say that this is one of those verses in the Bible. Again, let me read it and you'll hear, hear what the verse says. The spiritual person can evaluate everything, but he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. Let me go ESV, KJV. He cannot be judged by anyone. Well, this became the proof text. Mm -hmm. And again, proof texting is the process of ripping a verse out of its context and beating people over the head with it and saying, see... You're, you're not allowed to hold me accountable. Yeah, I'm so spiritual. Yeah, I'm o- so only spi- God can judge see, me. I'm above right? it all. Exactly. <laughs> and so I would say it this way to our hearers. This verse 15 has been greatly abused in the church over history by those who think themselves so elite that they are beyond discipline and they are beyond counsel. They are beyond accountability. Again, I just want to brag on our church. This gives me just a moment to brag on, on Cornerstone. Every time we revise governing documents, we don't revise them so those in leadership have more authority and less accountability. We always go the other way. The complete opposite. Complete opposite. We always revise our documents to say, hey, we see a little hole here or a little opportunity here where we can be a little more accountable. Yeah. And we keep creating wonderful systems where we can act as uh, checks and balances to each other and sounding boards to each other, and be accountable to each other, both in our spiritual health, in how we handle finances, and how we make spiritual decisions for the church, and how we are leading our own lives, as well as the, the congregation in a more public way. So this verse has been much abused. And to say, see, I'm spiritually, you're not allowed to do it. That's a travesty application of this verse yeah. that is not at all well and not only that you, you see paul directly doing this in his mm-hmm. letter right here right he yes. is admonishing the church yes 100%. and he is evaluating them. so so to come away with that idea of see i'm above judgment is a 180 degree yeah. departure from what paul is actually trying to say right well and i would even say david you and i talked about this in great depth if you were to really take the 
paragraph as a whole, I would probably argue that he's making even a greater point mm-hmm. about judging the things of God. Yes. And then consequentially the people, the people of God. That's right. Right. And so if we are to really have the mind and spirit of God within us, mm-hmm. then we're able to truly understand the wisdom. Remember, because the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Yeah, they can't evaluate it accurately. Right. And so I would probably make an argument that this particular section of scripture is talking more about being good evaluators of the will, mind, and spirit of God. And then consequentially, that becomes good evaluators of his people. Because again, like verse 11 says, we have his spirit within us. And so having his spirit within us then puts us especially positioned to be able to understand him greater. I don't want to beat this to death, but I think it is important to, to answer this question as fully as we can think of as we're sitting here talking about it and as we've prepped for it. You were saying that it's not as though unbelievers can't look in at a Christian and see what's going on. How do we harmonize Romans chapter 13, where there are governmental structures that are over us and for our good, if not having sort of a nuanced viewpoint here. It's not as though when a Christian does something wrong, you get to pull this verse out and say, well, you can't judge. You're not allowed to judge me. So you're, again, you're developing a more macro theme of first Corinthians. Why is Paul in conflict with them? Again, let's circle back to it. They think they're spiritual, Mm -hmm. but their behavior betrays that. It says the opposite, their attitudes and behavior say, no, we are not spiritual, right? We are infants. We are immature. We, we don't get it is what their behavior says. So Paul is very concerned about their behavior mm-hmm. in front of the community. That's, yeah. Especially so, yeah. especially so. And again, here in our, let's take it up to a contemporary mm-hmm. application for us. I think God is very concerned. I think brother James who wrote the book of James would be very concerned about how we actually live out our faith in front of our community about what attitudes we carry to school, to work into the community. People are judging us by our attitudes and our actions. Now, when Paul says, you know, that which is not spiritual, can't judge that which is spiritual. He's talking about, they don't get the gospel, right? They don't get the wisdom of God. It doesn't mean that the world, when we say the world doesn't get the wisdom of God and and therefore it is not true wisdom, we don't mean the world's not intelligent. Right. And and, and sometimes we come away with, oh, these people are not intelligent. Listen, there's some brilliant people in this world who, who don't know Christ. And I think the real, it's kind of hard to find the defining language here, but the rub that Paul's trying to make is you think you're so spiritual Corinthians. That's the argument (laughs) here. Yeah. And you've missed, if you, if you want me to not preach the gospel and to move on to the deeper things, what is deeper than God loved us and sent his son to die for us and is redeeming all things. And we were made in his image and we're to be living temples of God. I I mean, images of God, he's going to restore heaven and earth. The message of the Bible is incredibly profound. And don't we see this paralleled even today? We see people constantly who, in their search and pursuit of deeper theological understanding, lose sight of what the actual point is, right? We see this all the time, where people go on such a departure to get as much information transfer mm-hmm. as they can, and they forget that the greatest truth is the most simple, yep. and that's in the gospel. I'll speak for myself. I get jazzed up about reading books and study. That's, that's my wheelhouse. I love to do it. And I have to remember... There's a very simple way to live for Jesus that doesn't involve 
Trinitarian debates and you know whatever sure. whatever the thing is. There's a very simple way, and we do have to remember that this is really what it's all about. Stop being babies. Let's grow up and live like Christ has called us to, with the mind attached. I'm going to circle back one more time and just say I don't want anyone to come away with us saying everybody who's not saved is you know they're stupid oh, and the Christians are smart yeah. again. This is what Paul's really speaking against is yeah. spiritual elitism yeah. that creates an attitude where you're looking down your nose at someone else and you're considering yourself better than somebody else. Paul is consistent in his writings to talk about us as servants, condescending to people of low estate. You know, if you want to put yourself in a group, put yourself in the group of servants, put, put yourself yeah. in, in, the, in the group of needy people. There's some very, very smart people in this world who are not Christians. I think Paul's point might be, imagine the tragedy to be a PhD in all things of worldly wisdom and to live your life and miss Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. yeah. And to live 70 or 80 years here on this earth is but a drop in the bucket of eternity. And to miss Christ, again, you remember the language of Jesus, what would a person give in exchange for for his soul. Yeah. You know, if, if you gained the whole world and lost your soul, wouldn't you kind of be a fool? I mean, what, I don't know what word you would use, but wouldn't you be foolish and have missed the biggest point of everything? Right. And I think that's kind of the theme that's underlying here, but he's definitely at odds with the Corinthian people over their attitude towards we are smarter than everybody else. Yeah. And they're in a language war with Paul. Quit treating us like babies, you know, quit, quit feeding us milk. We, we want to move on. We're, we're ready for the deep things of God. And Paul's like, yeah, but your behavior betrays that. It belies that. Your yeah. behavior yeah. says a bottle is all you're prepared for right now. We've not grown to a place for anything, anything more. So let's ask the next one then. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul uses the phrase, quote, are being saved. Is he speaking to the process of sanctification? Or is he stating that those in the Corinthian church are considered neither lost nor saved at that point, as some commentaries suggest? They have knowledge of the gospel without grasping salvation yet. The latter seems to be supported by some of their viewpoints, being that they are disciples or followers of people rather than of Christ. It could go to a core misunderstanding of salvation itself and speak to the immaturity found within the church. But if it is true, why would Paul group himself in this category by using us who are being saved. Well, and that, again, a, a nice question. Let's just see if we can unpack it a little bit. The question centers again on 1 Corinthians 1, back to chapter 1, verse number 18, and Paul's particular use of language, mm -hmm. those who are being saved. Mm -hmm. And the one asking the question is troubled by the words. Sure. I can sense that in the question. Sure. I don't like Paul using the words, are being saved. It's not our vocabulary for talking about being saved. Does that when make you sense? say it's not our vocabulary. Uh, it, it's not in our, I'll say for me, let me use an I statement. It's not in my Baptist traditional vocabulary to talk about our being saved. There's uh, a definite uh, moment. Oh, wait yeah, a second. Not a process of salvation, but rather a right. moment of salvation right. is, is traditionally the view held by our circles. As a matter of fact, we exacerbated that. The, the water is muddy here for our questioner, and I'm afraid that the clergy and, mm -hmm. and the church is the one who actually muddied this water. Sure. And, and I think we need to unpack that maybe before we specifically answer the question that's been asked. How did we muddy the water on 
always wanting salvation to be a... I'll say a definable moment. There you go. He come up with any real real life scenarios how well, we might have messed J- messed Jer- with this. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy had a great example talking about how and I grew up similar to him going to youth camp and the pastor getting up there and uh, could, could you finish my sentence almost? Well, yeah. I mean, we think traditionally about the altar call moment. Right. You know, I invite you all to pray this prayer after me and accept yeah. Jesus into your heart. Yeah. Whereas the reality of that in broad Christian history is that those are all terms that weren't really popularized until about the 18th century. Have you have you ever heard a, a pastor, and you may have heard me, unfortunately, but uh, have you ever heard uh, someone say, if you can't really clearly define a moment? Then I would question your salvation. Oh, yeah, there is. Yeah. Somebody would say something like that. You know, yeah. if you don't know the date or the time or the place. The color the, of your socks. And, and exactly. <laughs> you know, all the circumstances, then I'm not sure that you're really born again and you need to be saved right now yeah. in this you need to be sure. altar yeah. call moment. You know, and I've run into this problem a lot recently as we go through and train people and coach people in the discipleship process. Mm-hmm. We want people to articulate their stories of right. their faith, right? Well, you even do a my story workshop we do workshops that to, teaches them how to tell their to story. To be able to articulate it well. And one thing that comes up actually more often as we see people coming from outside of our Baptist circles mm-hmm. is people say, "I'm a follower of Christ." And I fully committed my heart to him and I live according to his principles. But I can't tell you the time that I came to that understanding. I can't tell you the moment where I had a broad confession of sins, but I do confess my sins and I do confess him and profess him as savior. Yeah, which which really is the indicator of faith is Jesus Lord. And that so, is the early confession so of the church. David, then, if someone were to tell you that, would you advise them that they were saved or not? <laughs> yeah. No, we need to pray right now. Of course yeah. not. No, of you've got to say the words yeah. exactly my yes. way yes. Right. in this little magic formula, right. or we're not going to validate your salvation experience. Well, yeah. that's a big error on our part, if that is the right. case. Right, because I think oftentimes... The Holy Spirit works on people over a, I would yes. even say in most cases, the Holy Spirit yes. works on someone over a long period of time. That's good. And it's not until That's it good. all comes together and clicks in that moment that mm. they're able to say like, wow, you know what? I have trusted in Christ. Right. And sometimes we mistake a light bulb moment mm. mm-hmm. and we, mm-hmm. we understand that to be the entirety of the process. Right. Whereas the Holy Spirit's been working through the process the entire time. Yeah. That's really, really good. Well, let me give you a good example. Paul, in the book of Romans, writing this beautiful treatise on salvation by faith, mm-hmm. says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you shall confess with your mouth and believe mm-hmm. in your heart, et cetera, et cetera. Here's what's ironic. There is no sinner's prayer anywhere in the New Testament. In other words, if I was given the invitation here at Cornerstone, I might say to people, if you're at that moment now where you, you, you know, you're a sinner, you understand the gospel message, you know, Christ died for your sins and he rose again and, and you know, he wants to save you. If you're ready to do that, let's pray together. And I might lead them in a prayer, you know, that would look something like, dear Jesus, I believe you are the son of God, the savior of the world who came to die for my sins. And I believe you were buried and rose again the third day. And I, I believe that. And I also understand that I'm a, you know, that whole thing I would go through yeah. and, and have them pray with me. That's not in the scripture anywhere. And this is what I find ironic. You have a book teaching you how to be in a relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ. 
And yet nowhere in the scripture can you turn to chapter 37, verse 9. Sure. And now let's all recite the sinner's Yeah, find the sinner's prayer. prayer. Right. And so God, my assumption is there is not a set of magic words. Right. Or they would be there. Right. Instead, God knew that for each of us, Mm -hmm. contextually in our own circumstance, we might articulate that a little differently. Sure. And it may be. And again, when you talk about process, I mean, don't we all really understand that when someone comes to the moment of calling upon the Lord, that moment has been preceded mm-hmm. by weeks, months, or years even mm-hmm. of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their life, yeah. hearing the gospel message. Most people, I'm going to guess, don't respond the first moment they hear right. the gospel. Right. They hear it, the Holy Spirit then begins to work on their heart and says, this is truth. This is the wisdom of God. This is the power of God. And they may think that's foolishness at first. And so they're going to wrestle with the Holy Spirit. That's right. They may hear another message. They may come to church. They may attend a a, a crusade or an event or listen to their friend or whatever. Talk to them. Yeah. Actually, this is a great thing to pause on for a second. Crusades and events were kind of the catalyst for this. Sure. This specific understanding of an invitation or of a sinner's prayer. Because again, it's not until the 18th, 19th century that you see an altar call even becoming part of church vocabulary. It's not until the, the great awakenings, first and second great awakenings, where you see there needing to be a more efficient way to deal with the mass coming to know the spirit at once, right? You have these wonderful moments where people are in mass coming to know Christ. And I think a moment of efficiency was turned into instead... It's like unofficial church doctrine now. Right, where it's now (laughs) now a traditional thing that we do. I'm glad you're talking about this because these are things we don't often... These are those little aha moments we don't often really have. Nowhere, again, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you don't see Jesus, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit and, and blessed are the peacemakers and, okay, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That moment never happens. And you would think, I mean, yeah. you would th- we see some wonderful sermons in yeah. the Bible. You would think that if it was an important part, we would see the invitation sure. moment. Sure. Let's softly and tenderly play in the background. And let's let's prepare <laughs> let's prepare for yeah, now sure. a massive response. We know people were getting saved, yeah, yeah, and they were committing their lives. I mean, they were repenting and joining in this kingdom movement. They were declaring Christ's lordship and getting rid of their past. That defining invitation moment is not in scripture the way no. we've envisioned it. But again, it's not wrong to have an invitation. No, no. it's just. Our language has been imprecise about, yeah. you know, if you can't say the, the hour and the minute you receive Christ, I'm not sure most, most yeah. Christians throughout history could do that. So we've made a very unfair, very narrow yeah. definition of what it means yeah. to be saved. Well, and, and just for clarity's sake, the sinner's prayer is really a, a beautiful prayer of confession and belief in Christ. Yeah. Right. We're yeah. not speaking against that, obviously, no, 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 no. but at the same time, it's a helpful tool. That's not always the entry point. Oh gosh. Yes. Well, you know, I'm thinking too, the, the language of the center prayer is not necessarily language a sinner would use. Sure. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't know God and is just discovering him and following him. In other words, I, you know, I, I might say, you know, Lord, I repent of my sins and I receive you as my savior. And I'm trusting you to fill me with your Holy spirit where, where that's, Maybe my developed spiritual language, having walked with Christ for, you know, 40 years, 
that I'm now sure. offering for someone to follow in my language. But a person who doesn't know God would say something more like, Jesus, save me. Yeah, right. God, I'm a sinner. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I need you. Yeah. I commit to follow you. It'd be very simplistically said. So yeah. I, I, I had a really great opportunity when I was in college to work with some students in a small church. And there was one young lady who, after a time of, you know, devotional and whatever together, I was able to lead her in the sinner's prayer. And I, after we finished, she was, you know, bawling, crying, all that. And I look up and I'm like, oh, so did you, did you say what I said? And she went, no, but Jesus saved me. <laughs> so it's you like, didn't try to talk her out of that? No, you didn't exactly. want to argue with her? Well, let's go back and yeah, no, of yeah, course no, not. You've yeah. got to say it. See, we have to get past. You've got yeah. to say it this way. And at this moment, untold millions of people have been saved yeah. as they lay in their bed with sleepless nights, wrestling with conviction and got up in the middle of the night and fell down on their face beside their bedside and said, God save me. I'm a sinner. And the, that's what it looked like. The thief on the cross is a wonderful <laughs> example yeah. of someone who didn't have to say a sinner's prayer in order to be, let's even say sanctified. So let's go back to the yes. word sanctification, because I think this might come up in our upcoming conversation. Can you guys just give me a quick definition of what sanctification is? Becoming more like Jesus. Yeah. So you are set apart. Mm -hmm. You belong to God. Mm -hmm. And now you're going to become more like Jesus Christ. So yes. sanctification in itself is a process. It is right? a process. You don't just become sanctified. You don't just decide I'm going to follow after Christ and now I am fully sanctified and like him. No, it, it is a process in itself. I think it's very easy to understand if I, you start plugging in sinful habits, here's who I am and I have all of these sinful habits and I receive Christ as my savior. Those sinful habits may not necessarily disappear today. Yeah. It may be a process to, to overcome those sinful habits and to start acting and thinking like Christ. Listen, I've been saved a long time and still sometimes I'll read something in the Bible that Jesus said or God said, and I'm like, wow, I don't know if I would have said it that way. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, who are you? I mean, yeah, right, yeah. Right, right. Who's wrong, God or you? Well, right. I'm still bringing my thinking, sure. my attitudes in line with God, with Christ, and that it, sanctification is absolutely a process yeah. that happens over a lifetime, Yeah, which is curious because now the Corinthians think they're already there. Right. They've been saved like 30 minutes right. and now they're fully <laughs> sanctified and spiritual, spiritual oh, yeah. people. Oh, yeah. let, let me circle back to the question that was asked again, because the, the question said, are these people saved? Yeah. Paul's using the language are being saved. Are these people saved? And I feel like I can give a, a, a good response to that. Mm-hmm by reading the verses that precede verse 18 yep. in particular, let me, let me start in verse two and let me just call out some phrases as I read through these verses and let's see if these are saved people or not. Here's what Paul said. First Corinthians one, two to the church of God at Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sounds, so we, sounds like saved people. We know the audience. So yeah. you sanctified. That means set apart for God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Conforming to the image of Jesus was the word, the definition we just, that David, you just gave. Mm -hmm. Then Paul said, called as saints. Mm -hmm. Sounds like they're saved, right? With those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, and that was exactly what Romans said. If you, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right. Both their Lord and our Lord. Same Lord. We've made the same confession We've both called upon the Lord. He continues down in verse number six. 
In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Mm -hmm. The testimony about Christ is this gospel message we're talking about, that Christ died for the son of God who died for our sins and rose again. That message was confirmed among, in other words, they responded to the gospel and received Christ as their savior is what he's saying. Verse seven, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift. Verse eight, he will also strengthen you to the very end and you'll be blameless Mm. at the very end. Verse eight, uh, sorry, verse nine, God is faithful. You were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Sounds like they're saved to me. Verse number 10, now I urge you, brothers and sisters. And I feel like we could just keep going through the text, but after about nine witnesses here, you get the point. These are born, the Corinthians, what's in question is not their salvation. What's in question is their behavior and their attitudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it raises even larger questions. You know, can someone be saved? Well, clearly someone can be saved and still be involved in a sexual promiscuity. Sure. Attend the temple, idol temple, which is what they're That's doing. part of this whole book. Yeah. I mean, what the issue is, these, this is really the issue. They are born again. Yes. But they have not come to the understanding sure they have not grasped the wisdom that their behavior needs to now conform to right the, the internal reality of their salvation their attitudes are still greco-roman pagan attitudes mm-hmm. although they have received christ as their savior their their thinking hasn't conformed yet to that their behavior hasn't conformed yet to that yeah so they are saved mm-hmm. so let's clear that that off the table And when Paul uses the language then in verse 18, let me read verse 18. This is where the question comes from. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved, present tense. So let's deal with Paul's use of the present tense. Again, Paul says, you are being saved. And evidently that language struck a nerve with our questioner. And probably does with many people listening. Sure. Yeah. If I were to stand up on a Sunday or David, you or Jeremy and to say, for those of you who are being saved this morning, like, huh? blah, 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 blah. Right. Everybody's ears would perk up sure. suddenly yeah, and say, definitely. why are you saying it that way? Right. Because that's not, again, the traditional way sure. of us talking about salvation. As sure. David, you brought up a minute ago, the traditional way of us speaking about our salvation is always in the past tense. Right. I was saved at youth camp. I right. got saved when... I was a child in Sunday school. I got saved at home. My parents led me to Christ or I received Christ yeah. in a church service, but we're always using it in the past tense. Again, right. always referring to a defined right. moment in time. So is it okay? Let me ask you guys. Is it okay for Paul to use the present tense are being saved or do we need to slap Paul down and say, Paul, man, get with the program. Don't you know your theology, Paul? Right. So this is, again, why I asked for a clear definition of sanctification, yeah. because that ties very much along it's part to of the context. salvation, yes. right? Um, I would even say this. You have two sides to this. It is very much a compare-contrast situation. Mm-hmm. So you have those who are perishing and those who are being saved. When you look at the Greek, they're both present tense verbs. So yes. the language has to—the verse is present tense. So when Paul talks about salvation— he must address it in the present tense. Right. And so I would even say this, when you look it up, and I don't want to get too sure. lofty with this, but if you look it up in the Greek, both the the term 
are perishing and are being saved, they're both one word Greek phrases. They're not, you know, we, we look at things in English and we want to pick apart every single word and assume that that's how it was. It's really just those presently in the perishing camp and those presently in the salvation camp. But it takes three English words yeah, to, to explain this one. one very nuanced Greek yeah. term. Right. And of salvation three, in the present tense. And the three English words are, are being saved. So, so before we continue on this explanation, I, I want to say pretty clearly here, I don't think Paul is making multiple new distinctions. I think he's making two clear distinctions. He's not trying to create a sub-saved category or pre-saved or half-saved or whatever. The big idea of this paragraph is that God's wisdom is Christ, but this is foolishness to anybody who doesn't believe. They are perishing. And you are saved. And you are saved and presently saved. Presently saved. Presently are. And then I think there is some connotation that Paul means in regards to that being saved process. Would you like to kind of talk more about that, Pastor? Well, well, the sister, there's a sister verse to this. So before you think, well, Paul just temporarily lost his linguistic ability here and (laughs) stumbled a little bit. Right. In chapter 15, Paul uses the same language. In the coming chapters, of course, we'll study yeah. this on Easter Sunday, but in chapter 15, this is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I want to make it clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past tense, mm-hmm. and on which you have taken your stand, where you presently stand, mm-hmm. and by which you were saved, present with a future reality yet to come, because the rest of the sentence is this by which you are being saved, if you hold the message I preach to you. It's, uh, it's that language of enduring to the end, That's holding right. the gospel right. to the end. Yeah. So Paul talks about salvation in the sister passage here, mm-hmm. and he articulates all three aspects. And theologians yes. will sometimes talk about the past, present, and future aspect of salvation. If our listeners have never maybe probed this a little bit, let, let me just explain. On the cross, your salvation was paid for. That's past. It's done. There's nothing. Jesus said it's finished. There is nothing you can do to add to what he's already done. Your salvation rests in what Christ did Mm -hmm. and how you're going to now respond to that. And in a sense, it's all been paid for already. Mm. And it is past. But for Paul, it is also present. Right. You are being saved right now. And the day of the Lord is coming, yes. which in the Bible is the final day. The, yeah, second coming. The second coming yeah, yeah. When God judges the world or whatever, sets up his final phase of yes. the kingdom. And you will be saved all the way to that day. That's right. And so for Paul, salvation isn't a, I got saved at youth camp on October 31st on a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock. For Paul, I got saved because of what Christ did on the cross and my salvation rests in him. I responded to that somewhere along the way in the affirmative and received him and Mm -hmm. followed him. And now I am being saved and I will be saved all the way till his kingdom fully comes at the day of the Lord and the world is judged and he comes to rule and reign. For Paul, salvation is both past, present and future. And any language in the Bible that says you are presently being saved should not trouble us in the least. Yeah. Yeah. And again, if we want to look at some of the context, particularly here, you mentioned chapter 15. 
Paul spends like, I don't know, 58 verses in that particular chapter to to correct a doctrinal error that the Corinthians have about eschatology. And what was their doctrinal error? So they believed, sorry, let me back up. Eschatology (laughs) is a study of the end times, the way that things are going to play out at the end of time. So they believed that they were already in the fully realized kingdom that you were just talking about. They didn't believe in the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus. And so they believed they were already in the final heaven and earth reunification that we see in Revelation. Now, this over-realized eschatology didn't understand that a life directed toward Christ is merely in the inaugural phase of salvation, right? right? It's not It's not the final, full, complete thing. It's just at, it's a part of the timeline. How about that? It's in the timeline. So at our salvation, yeah, we are positionally justified before Christ. That means our standing before God is, is we're declared righteous in Christ. We're secure. We are safe. We're secure. We are saved. But then there is a, a reality in which we've become new creations, but we're still becoming a part of new creation. Sanctification. Yes. Sanctification. Well, was bringing up. That's right. This is a yeah. wonderful thing too. We we've accidentally turned the term saved into a technical term. Right. When it's actually a right. very practical term, we're, right. we're saved from what? We're saved from eternal separation yes. from God. And so then we're not really fully realized in our salvation until we are eternally present with him. That's And that's exactly right. Because then, because then the final part of this response would be our salvation, while secure, it's not fully realized until that final establishment of the kingdom. It is a process that yes. will not be complete until the day of our Lord. So that there is a past, present, and future aspect to salvation is undeniable in the scripture. Maybe I want to recap this in in one simple way. You know, we were talking about, you know, how how are you saved? Let me ask the question a little different. What is a Christian? Because when Jesus talks about, again, that's not a word they used, Christian. Right. But I'll use that word for our sake. If you were to ask Jesus, what is a Christian? He would have answered, I think, with the simple, straightforward easy to understand answer. And he would have used something like he did use when dealing with his generation. He used a gate and a path Mm -hmm. analogy. And being a Christian is being a follower of Jesus. You start following at a gate. Yeah. He used gates in his teaching, you know, go through the gate and then you continue following. Right. As you walk along a path, we would call that the Christian walk. Yeah. And at the end of the path, there is a finality now yeah. where you've come to the fruition, the fulfillment yes. of the realization of what you said a while ago, the reunified heaven and earth, where all that God has saved us to be. So let's don't be scared. Yeah. Just to recap, let's don't be scared of language that is biblical where Paul says we are being saved because we are being saved this very moment, I hope. Yeah. So that actually is a really nice segue into the final question that we've selected for Mm -hmm. response in this podcast. And again, if you have any questions or feedback that you'd like to present at any point to us, we'd love to be able to respond to the very best questions. And so you can text your questions to 817-809-3040. And we, again, we would just love to respond to those. However, the last question for today says this in chapter one, verse 24, it says, quote, to those who are called. It makes me wonder about pre-selection, predestination versus free will, etc. It could have just said to those who have believed, but it doesn't. 
It sounds more like selection than choice. It's a line that I'd previously circled in my Bible, and here it is again, still with a question mark. Well, let me just say, none of us can approach the biblical text without looking at it through our own lenses. We all bring baggage. You hear me say this on Sundays a lot. We all bring baggage to the church or to our reading of the scripture in this case. It is possible to be prejudiced by what you've taught, whether it's correct or or incorrect. What we need to remember is verse 24 belongs to the same paragraph as the previous question came out of, which we were reading from a moment ago. The author of our question asks, you know, Paul could have said to those who have believed, but he doesn't, which makes me think that the, the person who wrote the question intuitively understands that believing is an essential part of our salvation. Which I do want to pause for a second and say, this is a wonderful way to approach scripture. If I ever find something in scripture that seems to be Mm -hmm. red flagged against what I know to be true of God and of his heart, then I have to ask myself, is the word wrong here or is my interpretation wrong, right? I should always be questioning, wow, that doesn't seem to really fit with the narrative of scripture as I know it. So is it my interpretation that's wrong or is it scripture that's wrong? Mm -hmm. And I promise it's your interpretation that's wrong. Correct. Well, in verse 24, the questioner wants Paul to say, Something about believing, not just uh, something about, you know, being called. And the questioner says, I wish Paul, I wish Paul had said that differently. Well, he actually did. Yeah. And he did in the context, two verses earlier. So if Paul were here, he'd say, wait, 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 I did. I did. I said it right. I promise. So let, let me, let me read those who are being saved according to verse 24 or those who are called both Jews and Greeks. And to them, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But two verses earlier, in verse 21, this is what Paul said. For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe. believe. There it is. Intuitively, our questioner knew that this needed to be in the text and was troubled. It wasn't in verse 24. But again, remember, there were no verse markings. Yeah. Not until like 1550 or 1510 yep. or something, when Stefan has put the verse markings in, these are paragraphs and sentences combined together for these paragraph thoughts. When Paul wrote the paragraph, he did say it correctly. Sure. He said, those who are saved are those who are called and yeah. those who have believed yeah. through the foolishness of what I preach, which means the gospel, those right. who have believed in the gospel. So those who are being saved, let's use that present tense language sure. again. Those who are being saved are those who have been called. They've heard the gospel. They've responded to that. They've decided to follow Christ and make him the Lord and King of their life. And they have believed. Yeah. Well, and I wouldn't even say this. It feels like maybe, you know, when we, when we pull that clause out by itself, we say like, wow, he's being really exclusive here. Hmm. Like it's just mm-hmm. for those who mm-hmm. have been called. Right. However, he immediately expands that to say both Jews and Greeks. Yeah. Christ is their power. He he doesn't want it to remain exclusive. He immediately turns it inclusive of everyone. Yeah. It's it's almost like the point isn't who or who isn't in or who or who isn't called or whatever. The point really is whoever it is. The point is exactly whoever has received the gospel has gone out. That's right. Whoever responds to it. Whoever accepts that message, you found true wisdom. You found the power of God. You found the key to everything if you found Jesus and the gospel. Well, and again, if you go all the way back to verse two of the same chapter, he says that you've been called as saints 
if you have called on the name. There you go. Right. And that's consistent Pauline language now. Exactly. So this idea of him saying those who are called is not really problematic because he's talking about those who have been called and have called right back. That's right. Uh, Just you just use a modern metaphor now. Bring, bring. I'm calling you on the phone. And it can ring all day, but at some point, I'm hoping you'll pick it up. I have to pick up the phone and say hello. And if you pick it up, we can engage in a dialogue and hopefully a relationship. Yeah. And the gospel has gone out, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we hope that everybody listening here, those people who have called upon the name of the Lord. Yeah. Wow. Those were some fantastic questions. Mm -hmm. And I'm so thankful that people have been engaged with this. I'm so thankful for the people who have written in the past couple of weeks. We'd love to continue this dialogue. And again, if you have any questions as you listen to the sermons, as you engage with the podcast, as you watch the video devotionals, we want to connect with you and continue these conversations. And so what we'd love for you to do is send us a message, text the number 817-809-3040 with any questions that you have give us just a chance to collect those and respond to the most applicable ones. We'd love to just continue this conversation. That's what what we've named this podcast is Cornerstone Conversations, and we'd love for you to join in on that. Again, all of our sermons and podcast content are available on our website at cbc.family media or on any major podcast distributor. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so appreciative of the time that you took to listen as we engage in the content of 1 Corinthians.